This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Hey. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Saturday, June 22nd, we destroyed Gina's Grill in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's the Bad Boys and Tracy. It's the Ohio Podcast, Mysterious Circumstances, and Hillbilly Horror Stories. And all the way from Australia, it's Natasha Anchor, a.k.a. Amber from the Hillbilly Whorehouse. Buy your tickets now and help us this place up. See you there. See you there. See you there. Hey guys, welcome to episode 143 Hillbilly Horror Stories. That's it? Yeah, well, it's because we've done like 250 shorts. Oh, what does that? So it makes it <laughs> That sounded really weird when you said that. I know. I had to think. I had to do a double take myself. Oh. Hey, guys. Yes, I'm Jerry. Hey, Jerry. What's happening? <laughs> I'm Trace. Eh? Tree Dizzle. Tree Dizzle. Anyway. Oh, wait. Okay. What? So I got to say something real quick. You guys are crazy. Okay. That's all I got to say. Okay, what is going on with your mic? It's know. pointing it's down like towards your chest. There I you know. go. But anyway, thank you all for trying to um, come up with some rap names for me. I feel quite honored and baffled at the same time. But <laughs> I love y'all. You're all the best, man. She technically wasn't rapping. No, I really wasn't. But so. anyway, it's cool, though, that you think of me. I appreciate you. Okay. So, cool story tonight. We've got a possession story. Yeah. And an exorcism story. Those, those two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, they do. Otherwise, it's a possession story that really doesn't have a happy ending. Yeah, true <laughs> Or story. like Annalise Michelle, it could still not have an happy mm-hmm. ending. Um, so we're going to do that. You guys love the rock stories. Yep. So I had my son Alex sit in last week, and we recorded um, a cool story that involves a little rock and roll new cult. Mm-hmm. So we got that one. On the end for tonight. Nice. So, obviously, we want to start off by thanking all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter who you represent. Thank you, guys and gals, for what you do. Thank you. We love you guys so much. Appreciate you so much. And thank you for keeping us safe, and we're praying for your safety every day. And we probably should have done this on last week's show, uh, but we want to send out our heartfelt prayers and and thoughts to uh, all the victims of the Sri Lanka Yeah, that was like the saddest thing ever. Absolutely horrible. Terrible, terrible. We've been thinking about you guys, and man, you just, you don't even, you don't really have words to say how bad you feel because I can never imagine being in a situation like that. And it could just literally happen anytime, anywhere. So our thoughts and prayers are with you guys for sure. Of course, we want to let everybody know that if um, you're feeling, uh, depressed if you feel down and out if you just got things bothering you life's getting to you uh, remember there's people you can talk to you can reach out to us you can reach out to the group you can reach out to the professionals out of the uh, suicide prevention hotline 1-800-275-8255 or you can text them at 741-741 if you're more of a texter than a talker uh, mm-hmm. like i said or you can send us some messages we've had a couple people send us some messages this week that um uh, telling us how appreciative they are that we do this and, and telling us that, that we've helped them through some tough times. And uh, that is so appreciated. You have no clue. Yeah, it really means a lot to us. And we're there no matter what time of day, if y'all need to call. Hopefully we can just give you some encouraging words and let you know that we love you guys very much. And you all mean the world to us. All right. All right. We're about to get into the... Groovy stuff. We are. We are going to get into some groovy stuff. 
And then we'll talk about some show stuff later, some live events sure. and stuff. So, Emma Schmidt was born in Wisconsin on March 23rd, 1882. She was raised a devout Catholic. Her parents were German immigrants, and uh, Emma would become the subject of one of the most famous exorcisms in American history, only not by her real name. She was better known as Anna Eklund. Her family eventually moved to Earling, Iowa, and her childhood was a mess, to say the least. It's terrible. Her Her mother passed away. Her father began having an affair with her her aunt Mina. Her aunt, I'm assuming, on, was on her mother's side, was known to be a witch by the locals. It's heavily believed that not only was her dad and aunt having an affair, they were also putting a curse on her by placing spells on the herbs that they put in her food. Oh, wow. And we'll get into a little more of that as we get into it. He's asking for double trouble there. I know it. It's also believed that Dad had an incestuous relationship, or at least tried to. So by the age of 14, Anna began showing signs of possession. Now, we mentioned that she was raised a devout Catholic. Not sure when that changed, but I'm going to assume that all this probably changed with her mom's passing. Yeah. Something obviously changed because she's now being raised by her dad and aunt, who are having an affair and trying to curse her food for whatever reason. So that's that's, kind of a lot to put up with already. Yeah. Now, the signs of possession that she was exhibiting were things like an intense dislike for anything holy or sacred, including blessed objects or images. In a very similar style to Annalise Michelle that we, we mentioned a little bit earlier, she couldn't even walk into a church because of an unseen force. She was also obsessed with disturbing sexual acts. Many attribute this to her father's attempts of incest. Uh, These actions may have been imprinted on her. Oh, man. So by the time Anna was 26 years old, it is believed that she was completely possessed. What we haven't mentioned yet is that at the age of 14 on June 18, 1912, Anna had an exorcism performed on her. Now, it was performed by Father Theophilus Reisinger. Now, he was a Capuchin monk in Wisconsin back when they lived in Wisconsin, you know, she lived in Wisconsin, because that's, that's where she was born at. Does her dad know that she had that? Yeah, we're going to get, we're, now we're getting ready to get into it. I kind of oh, okay. did a brief little synopsis, and now we're going to okay. get, get ready and get into details. So, this was thought to be successful, but it, ultimately it was unsuccessful because her dad and her aunt at this time, started cursing the spices that were given to Anna. So to be clear, I know we did a little um, back and forth there. Like I said, just a little synopsis. But the cursing of the food stuff came at the point of the story right after the exorcism. Oh, after the exorcism. So at 14 years old, she was showing signs. Mm -hmm. They went and had the exorcism. And after the exorcism was done, then the father and the aunt started cursing the food Basically, well, you're getting ready to hear why. Mina, we mentioned a little bit earlier, Anna's aunt, was known to be a a witch in the community that practiced mainly the black arts. Mm -hmm. During these curses, her dad and her aunt called upon Satan for assistance so that Anna could specifically suffer the torment of being possessed again. Well, they knew that according to the Bible... If a demon's expelled, like it was during the exorcism, for whatever reason, if that demon is allowed to return, he would return with seven stronger than him. Oh, my God. So he's coming and bringing a bunch of friends. Obviously, that possession would be much harder to, uh, if well, even impossible in some cases, to be successful if you did an exorcism again, just because. Because there's so many and it's right. so much stronger. So you're going to fast forward to August 17th, 1928, 16 years after the first exorcism. Jacob and Mina are both dead and gone. That's her dad and her aunt. 35-year-old Anna is now about to go through her second exorcism with Father Theophilus. He wanted to do this in a different city than where she was living at now. Now, this first one was in Wisconsin. Now you're in 
Erlane, Iowa. And um, was there a point for that? Well, he 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 thought that if he did it somewhere else, because it's a little small town, everybody knows everybody. That, oh yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, kind of like a. Um, uh, old time hippo laws. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's none, none of your business. Right. So. He just he's just trying to save her her privacy. Yeah. So this time he had the help of a local priest, uh, a gentleman by the name of Father Joseph Steiger. Now, like I said, remember that first one was in mm-hmm. Wisconsin, so this is why it was important for him to grab somebody local. As soon as they start the opening prayers, it was obvious that they were not going to have time to go find a new location to take her to. So they decided to take her to a uh, nearby convent that was uh, ran by some Franciscan nuns. They had to get the mother superior's permission, which they got. So they said, okay, let's just move her in there. Lots of protection, and we'll be able to make things happen the way we need Mm -hmm. to. Well, as soon as they get her in there, a strange thing started to happen. The nuns attempted to give Anna blessed food because that was their custom. They blessed all the food before they gave it to them. Now, keep in mind, she didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. They just attempted to give it to her. Anna's, oh, the nuns didn't know? No, Anna didn't know. Oh, okay. Sorry. The, the, because the nuns blessed the stuff back in the kitchen and stuff. All they oh, know, so all, she didn't know that. Yeah. No, they just brought her food. Well, somehow she knew that the food was blessed, and she refused to eat. She would hiss like a cat and get agitated as soon as they brought the food near her. Oh, dang. If they didn't bless the food, she somehow knew it and would eat it. So, she would only have unblessed food at this point to make sure that she ate. Father Theophilus said that she had several demons inside of her, but five main ones. There were two inhuman spirits and three human spirits. The two inhuman were biggies, though. Lucifer and his right-hand man, Beelzebub. Oh, crap. The inhuman ones were Judas. Oh, my gosh. Jacob and Mina. Oh, <gasps> what? So Those heifers came back to haunt. Oh, my gosh. According to the priest, Judas was only there to tempt Anna into committing suicide. On the hell side of things, Judas is the patron demon of suicides, basically. So that's why he would be there. Now, Jacob, her father, was condemned to hell because he cursed his daughter uh, to be defiled by demons. And because she would not com- commit incest with him. So now we're starting to get into the answer of why they were cursing the food. It was probably a revenge thing. He tried to have incest with her. She refused. And then they're like, well, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to curse your food. How could her dad do that to her? Who knows? So while he may not have been successful on earth, he was able to still violate her, his daughter from beyond the grave. The sick ass. Mina was condemned to hell because she had an immoral life, including having an affair with Jacob while he was still married to his wife and, and she was alive. And she had murdered four of her own children throughout her life. And it's presumed that these were through abortion, not like kid mm-hmm. being two years old. Out of all these demons, Mina and Judas were the most violent offenders when it came to the Blessed Sacrament, which is communion. Mm-hmm. They were constantly trying to destroy or defile it when it was in their presence. To mutilate it would basically represent everything that they had attempted to do in real life. They were trying to taunt anything holy, and that was basically what they did in real life. So over the course of the 23-day exorcism, some incredible things were witnessed. It took up to six athletic nuns to hold Anna down, and at times, she exhibited inhuman strength. It took 23 days to do that? hmm Oh, my gosh. On more than one occasion, Anna was seen by several witnesses to levitate completely off the ground. One incident especially stood out. So Anna was on the bed, right? She was lying on her back. Mm-hmm. She flew out of the bed and landed in a crouching position on the wall right above the door 
Just like a flight, uh, a Spider-Man or a fly. Yeah, or something I can totally would. see it. Yeah. So just picture laying on her back and, as if something springs, you know, like a sprung you, yeah, like, that. like a yeah. slingshot or something, just zip straight to, and then she just like stuck to the wall in a crouching position. Several witnesses saw this. It's as if she completely defied gravity. Voices would come from her while she was sleeping, but not from her mouth, from her throat. Her lips wouldn't even move. These voices would verbally assault everybody in the room and blaspheme the Lord. She would tell the nuns and priests sins that they committed in their younger years. Things that were very specific that she shouldn't have had any knowledge of. Well, that's embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah. Awkward. She would speak in several languages that she supposedly had no way of knowing. Mm Mm-hmm. She even told one priest, Father Steiger, that if he didn't leave her alone and take all the other priests with him, that he would be involved in a near-fatal car crash. She started to show signs of possessed gravity. Now, an example of this would be like one time she was laying in the bed, just laying there. Weight of her own body would normally just indent the bed a little bit, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But in this case, her body pressed down so hard on the bed that the mattress sank all the way to the metal frame and then bent the metal bed frame. What? In all the she's world? doing is laying there. It's as if she weighed 2000 pounds all of a sudden. Oh wow. She would then vomit, spit, drool or urinate and defecate in human amounts. I mean she was urinating buckets of fluids at this time and she was hardly eating or drinking anything. Oh, that poor poor thing. She would also throw up things like that resembled herbs, like it would look like tobacco leaves and mm-hmm. stuff, stuff that she hadn't eaten. But keep in mind, they were, these were herbs that were given to, to her. To her, yeah. So they were, were still in her system, I but, guess. Well, I don't know about that, but it was just because, I mean, once you start throwing up for 20 days, I, I would think all that stuff would be would gone. Would be gone, yeah. But it would be stuff that she hadn't eaten anytime soon, and she would just be throwing it up. Aww. So They said that. Her head became elongated and it swelled on occasion, and at one point her lips became the size of hands. Her body would expand to the point of severe bloating, where she was almost double her normal size, and then just go back to normal size almost instantaneously. Then there was the smell. The smell of rotting flesh that basically just hung in the air, causing constant gagging by everyone in the room. Hordes of flies and mosquitoes would manifest and then disappear just as quickly as they came. Now here's the biggie. This is the only known case of possession where the priest had lucid visions during the exorcism. So Father Theophilus is in there, and he says that during the point of them doing the readings, he could look over, and it looked like the, the whole room was engulfed in flames, first of all. Mm-hmm. And then he could look over, and he saw Lucifer and Beelzebub standing in the corner, just kind of confined there. And he said Lucifer was extremely tall, with matted black fur, and his lower body had hooves. He said he was wearing a crown and was seething with rage at Father Theophilus, because he was confined by God's law to be unable to cause physical harm to a person. That came straight from the priest. Beelzebub was also seething with rage, but not quite as vocal as Lucifer. Beelzebub did mock the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, according to Father Theophilus, Lucifer was present for about 14 days of this exorcism. According to Father Theophilus, also, he felt that the Antichrist would be coming soon. He also felt that Judas uh, would be controlling the Antichrist and guiding every action that he would be making. So the demons left eventually two days before Christmas. This may sound confusing because I mentioned that the exorcism was 23 days long and started in August. Oh, how does that work? (laughs) Well, it's because it was only 23 days, but it was split up into sessions. Oh, The first was August 18th to August 26th. The second was September 23rd to September 20th. 
and the last was an eight-day session that was from December 15th to December 23rd, 1928. When the demon left, or demons, I should say, left, the priest heard a piercing scream followed by numerous voices all at once filling the room. The demon's parting words were, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, hell, hell, hell. Anna regained her consciousness, and her first words were in praise of Jesus. God, that poor girl. How in the world can you go through all that? And as far as the name Anna Eklund, a German theologist by the name of Karl Vogel wrote an account on the exorcism in 1935, and that's the name that he gave her uh, to protect her ID in the book. And that's why she became known as Anna Eklund. <sighs> how, how does a body withstand all that? I mean, does she remember all that, I guess? Or no? As far as I know, she doesn't know much uh, about any of that. Most of the time, remember when we were talking to Bishop Long, he said they usually don't Don't remember remember. anything. Oh, my gosh. I hope to the Lord that she didn't remember that. That's just horrifying. But just a little couple of things to end on on this case. In 1936, the exorcism... was featured the exorcism they did in 1928, the second one. It was it was featured in Time magazine. Whoa, wow! I couldn't really find any other information on Anna Eklund or Emma Schmidt after the exorcism, not even a date of death. So have no clue. Uh, there was a movie made in 2016 called The Exorcism of Anna Eklund, uh, but I haven't seen it, so I really don't know anything about it. It's a British movie, I believe. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Just listen to everything that poor thing had to go through. It's it's bizarre how it picks on a child like that and how that all started. Yeah, it truly is. I just can't even imagine. I can't imagine what her life would be like after that, even though she didn't remember. But you would think that there would be some kind of weird... I don't know, like, she would feel like something was just not right or off or, you know what I'm saying, like, through her life. Well, I mean, when you look at Robbie Manheim, which was the um, little boy that most people knew as Roland Doe, that The Exorcist was based off of, the little boy, I mean, he went on to live a normal life and, I mean, still alive today. But somebody, do you not think somebody would have told her about that? Well, I mean, I would think, I would think so. I mean, how how would you react to that? But she may not have been told because I don't know how many people were in on it other than the nuns and the priests. Wow. That's amazing. But we don't know how old she was when she passed or anything. No. She could be still alive today. Yeah. At the age of 130 years old. Mm-hmm. She was born in the late 1800s. So yeah. She's not alive today. Yeah. But we don't know when she died or anything about her. I couldn't find anything on her. So. Man, it's a tough. Terrible. It's actually a tough case to find much out on at all. So it took a lot of research just to get the little twenty minutes that we came up with. Yeah, and it's just horrible within itself. But to know that her dad had a part in all that, yeah, that's so awful. And her aunt, which was her mom's sister, yeah, that's just terrible. Ugh, terrible, terrible. All right, so I guess real quick, Tracy, let's go over. Let's do the iTunes. Okay. We had a lot of great reviews this week, guys. We appreciate you. KFI podcast listener, Leah Bella One, Tina, Dustin Daniels, Mia9978, Big Body Bugatti. Love it. Um, we're going to say anonymous. There wasn't a name on this one. McLeod T72, Hammer8508, K Cummings. And MWB1978. You guys rock. Thanks for making my week. I look yep. so forward to reading those reviews. I do too. That's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning. Is it? That's mm-hmm. what I do too. Yeah, I, I roll over in the bed and I, I look at reviews mm-hmm. and I see where our listens are yeah. for this week. Because it actually starts my day off in a yep. good mood, to be honest. Even on a Monday, yo. <laughs> and then our Patreons, we have Jennifer Stoltenheim. Shonda, Shonda D'Ambros, Peggy Let, ooh, Tusky, Letusky, 
Batuski. <laughs> sorry, Peggy. I love you, honey. I'm sorry. I know I messed your name up. And Rebecca Howard, we love you, girl. Tell your hubby we said hey and we're thinking about him. And thank you guys for being Patreon supporters. That means a lot to us. And we hope you um, are enjoying your shorts. And if you all have any suggestions of anything else you would like to hear, just let us know. Because yeah, we'd love to listen to it. And, like, we're getting ready to go to Houston. And yes. The, the money that you guys pledge is what gets us to these places to be able to come out and meet you. So yeah, it's basically, it helps us a lot. We use it for basically everything is that we upgrade in the show, oh, the yeah. new equipment we got, mm-hmm. and then traveling to the live events. And, you know, we, we had somebody mention one time, and this is, isn't um, trying to play this sad card or feel sorry for us or anything like that, because that's not what this is. But, you know, somebody was like, oh, you make a lot of money off them shows. Not really. We, we really don't make money off the shows. It pays the travel expenses usually. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, you know, because we usually have two or three other shows with us. And then by the time mm-hmm. everybody gets a little bit of it, it it's enough for everybody to cover their travel expenses and. Yeah, we appreciate that so much, you guys, because the whole biggest blessing of this whole entire thing is getting to meet you guys, first and foremost, because you guys are our big happy family now, and oh, it keeps growing and growing, and we just are very blessed and very, very happy. Yeah, we, we're looking forward. we got Houston coming up now mm-hmm. in less, less than a week and a half. Yes, come. So we're gonna, it's so bizarre. It's so crazy. It's a 15-hour drive, so <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah. But so, poor Jerry, I feel bad for him. You're going to be driving some of that. Well, I mean, I know, well, but. That, that could be even more reason to feel bad for me. Um, <laughs> I can't win. It's either i got to deal with you driving <laughs> or i got to deal with me driving and you on me the whole time. I won't be on you the whole time. Okay. <laughs> I remember the New Orleans trip. So, um, once again, you heard the little commercial at the beginning of the Indianapolis mm-hmm. show coming up, and we've got the Atchison show coming up. I made Tracy watch a video the other day on the Sally House. How did that go over? Oh my gosh, I'm more scared than ever. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even kidding you guys. Like I am like so scared. Dolly said, "Remember the, uh, the one of the last episodes? I said that." You you were going to run off with Justin mm-hmm. in the Sally House. Mm-hmm. Dolly said you can run off with Justin and she'll take your spot and spend a night in the hey, Sally House. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Good time either way. What do you think? There you go. <laughs> Ooh, so but I'm excited though. Yeah, it was a lot of lot of cool stuff. So if you if you want to come to one of the shows and you want to wear some hillbilly mm-hmm. horror story stuff, go to our website. You can check out what shows are available. Uh, we're still working on New York and Philly. We ran into a little snag as far as uh, finding locations and stuff. So it probably take another week or two, mm-hmm. but uh, we're working on it. And we'll announce those dates coming soon. But we're excited about that. Yeah. And, you know, some people asked, and I got to bring this up because we brought it up, then really didn't clarify. The Gatlinburg, we had mentioned Gatlinburg probably four months ago, but we couldn't work out a location there. So there is no Gatlinburg show. We're going to shoot for that again next year. And the same situation with uh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine, we didn't realize that the time we were trying to set that up is that was basically bike month for almost everywhere down there. Mm-hmm. So it's almost impossible to get places that aren't already going to be packed because yeah, they got a, yeah. a bunch of uh, uh, bike rallies and stuff like that going on. So that's that's what happened to those two shows. We'll do them in the future. But as of right now, uh, that's what happened to Gatlinburg and that. So let's go ahead and uh, do some rock and roll stories. Are you up for that? Oh, I'm excited about that. Heck yeah. All right. Well, let's take a listen. All right. So I brought my son Alex in for this one. He, uh, You might have heard him back on episode 50, and then we did uh, a Chris Cornell bit right after Chris Cornell passed, where we talked a little bit about that. So he's been on a few times where we do the music one, and we've got a music one for you. I know you guys love the rock and roll and the occult type stuff, and I'll preface this the same way I do any of these other stories. It's not saying that this is what I believe or this is what I think happened. This is just the story that's out there, and this actually came straight from the band that we're going to talk about. So just so there's no confusion that I'm playing holier than now, or I think this, or I think that. It's not religious-based or any of that. It's just the stories that are already out there, not my opinion. Alex, thanks for coming on. Yep. Well, that enthusiasm was just rings through. So, Alex, we're going to talk about the band Mars Volta. Have you ever heard about them before today? No, not before today. What do you think of their music from what you heard? I think it's garbage. 
Okay. Not a fan. I'm not real big on it either. They're actually, um, Mars Volta is what, what is considered a progressive rock band, and they're from El Paso, Texas. And they were pretty big at one point in time. They won the Grammy in 2009 for the best hard rock performance, and they were voted the best progressive rock band by Rolling Stone Magazine in 2008. So they obviously had a following, whether we like them or not. They broke up in 2012, so they're no longer a band, though some of the other uh, members do get back and forth together with each other and do some uh, some little side projects. So what we're going to focus on, though, is a, a CD that came out in 2008 called The Bedlam in Goliath. Now, they already had a unique sound, as you can attest to, even before this. Yeah. But this release had a bizarre sound, even for them. They attribute the songs on this CD to a Ouija board. And, you know, it's no strange tale to hear about, you know, we've had other artists like um, uh, authors say that they wrote books completely based on what was given to them through Ouija boards. We've had poets say the same thing. This one, though, is a little different because it's basically a whole album slash CD where all of the songs supposedly were given to them by this Ouija board. And here's where it supposedly started at. The songwriter and guitarist Omar Rodriguez Lopez was visiting Jerusalem. And he happened to go into an antique store. And that antique store had an antique Ouija board. And he bought it. Do you Have you ever messed with a Ouija board? No, not personally. Do you have any issues with Ouija boards? I mean, if somebody had one out, would you play with it? Or are you against it? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I don't really care either way, but I don't really believe in them either. Okay. So he thought this would be a good gift to buy for the band's lead singer, Cedric Bixler Zavala. Once they bought it, of course, you know how it is when you're in a band and you're on the road a lot. You know, they're on the tour bus. They're looking for something to do. And it got to the point where they were using this thing all the time. This was their number one way of passing time while they were out touring. And the two began to play with it, obviously. They called it a soothsayer. That was, you know, instead of a whatever the reason was, that was at least the name that was given to it to them. They said that they contacted a spirit named Goliath, thus the name of the CD. It wasn't only Goliath, though. It was also two females that were his lovers. Supposedly, they were both in a love triangle with Goliath. So that's who came through on here. Now, Lopez said that he and Zavala became so entranced by the messages that came through this Ouija board that it became the centerpiece for the new record. They said in the in the little case that it came in, a little curio case that this thing came in, they found some handwritten notes that they had translated and they also incorporated them into the album as well. So some of these notes actually became lyrics for for some of the songs on the album. Concept albums uh, were not new for this band. They had done some stuff before that were uh, on, on previous albums that were from a found diary that they, they ran across, deceased friends and band members, and uh, religious fanaticism were all basis of, of albums they had. So... Much like, and you know what a concept album is, correct? Where it's like Pink Floyd, The Wall, where everything kind of, it's all one theme, more or less. Yeah, I mean, it, just like with 6AM, The Heroin Diaries, which is also the name of his book. Right. They, they made the whole album based on that. Now, this was different than the other albums and, that had the themes because it turned sinister. Lopez said that he started getting nervous because it began asking for things in a threatening way. And Cedric was getting more and more obsessed and into this thing. Being someone who had overcome a drug addiction, Lopez said that he saw the obsessiveness and the compulsion that Cedric was starting to show. He said to him, it was no different than when uh, he was getting clean and sober back in the day. And, and Jeremy, which was a guy that was in the band was still doing drugs. And Jeremy ended up, uh, OD and dying in 2003 so that was his reference he said you could see it from a distance and be like oh man this isn't good and that's the kind of way he felt with seeing Cedric with this board so Lopez took the board away from, from Bixler and buried it so you would think that would be just the end of it no that's when things really started to get strange for the band 
Lopez said that the sound guy freaked out, first of all, when he found out about the origins of these songs and uh, on the album because he, he was not into Ouija boards and he had a big fear of them. And he was like, no, that's, I'm not into that. And if that's what we're going to do, and that's an issue. But he went ahead with it. The band was plagued by illnesses, relationship problems, and unexplained technical glitches throughout the whole recording process. They would record tracks, and then it would, they would just disappear off of the computer, forcing the band to completely re-record the tracks. And this wasn't something that happened like one song. One, this happened multiple times. They tried different computers in case there was a problem with that one. They did everything that they could have done. Even in some cases, they had backups where they had the song on this computer and on a different computer, and they would both just disappear. This would normally sound like, uh, I guess, a ploy to selling records, but this came from a band that in that, that time itself had a reputation for being one of the most sincere and passionate bands around, and they were so big on their music as far as uh, the love of, of their actual music and the credibility that they wouldn't have wanted to put anything out there that would have jeopardized what people thought about their music. The label, though, on the other hand, they did capitalize on the story by marketing an online video game called Soothsayer that the band says they had absolutely nothing to do with. Hmm. So that's the story of how they say the whole album came to be. So the question to you is, you've kind of already answered it because you say you don't believe in that sort of thing. So what do you think went on? If they're telling the truth or they believe they're telling the truth, what do you think happened? Where did these songs come from? Was it just their creativeness? Why were they, why was the sound so different from their other sound? And why was uh, Bixler, the lead singer, so infatuated and compulsive with this thing? Do you think it's all just a, a mental thing or do you think there could be something to it? Well, with it being an older Ouija board, I mean, I don't know what's different between what they used to be and what they are now. So it, it's hard to say just on that alone, but I've never seen any proof or any sign of proof from a Ouija board that they actually work. So it's hard for me to believe that that's a situation. Uh, I think his infatuation could have come with the idea that, you know, it made me, it was inspiring because it was something a little bit spookier, something out of, out of the norm. So maybe it could help to inspire on his own. Maybe he was tricking everybody else into it. Yeah, very possible. I could see that. It's that whole mob mentality type situation or the mass hysteria with, I don't know if you can call it mass hysteria with two people, but hey. Yeah, but I think it'd be easy to become addicted to something like that because now you've convinced everybody else to what you're thinking and you can use that to sway them however you'd wanted to. So I, I've, I've mentioned several times on here my dislike for Ouija boards because I have had experiences with them that, that I don't talk about. And I just, you know, I'm convinced that a Ouija board is something that could be used if in the hands of somebody who knows how to properly use one to get answers the correct way. But I also believe that there are sneaky spirits that will find their way in and, and have a hard time trusting anything that came out of it, even if it sounded good. How do you know you can believe the spirit that's on the other end? So, I mean, that's that's my take on it. I do believe wholeheartedly that they work. Um but I think situations just like they experienced could very well happen. I mean, it started off something positive. Hey, I'm getting some cool stuff out of it. We've got this person we're speaking to. And next thing you know, it's demanding stuff. And I really didn't see anything about what it was demanding or any of that stuff that freaked them out so much. Because obviously something freaked them out where, they, where the Lopez decided he just needed to take things into his own hands and take the board. And, 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 I, and one other story I wrote said he actually broke it over his knee and then buried it and all that stuff. So... I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting story. So let's move on to something else. I don't have tons of detail right in front of me, but I thought it was a cool story. I was doing some research on Bon Scott, the original lead singer from ACDC. And of course he died in 1980, um, died alone in a Renault automobile in the middle of winter in, in England. And they were, depending on who you talk to, they were right in the middle of writing the, so that the songs for Back in Black. Now, if you talk to the band today, they somewhat say that the album was a tribute to Bond, uh, that the music was done and that Bond had came to the studio, but hadn't had a chance to really listen to the songs to do any 
any of the writing for the for the lyrics. And then all of a sudden he passed away. This uh, Brian Johnson comes in, new lead singer, and Brian Johnson says that he had a dream of Bond. And Bond basically telling him things were okay. Some things happened in his room that kind of freaked him out a little bit in the hotel room before they started recording. And Brian Johnson is credited for writing all the lyrics on Back in Black. But there's a young lady um, that says that when the band came down and they had like a little two-week sabbatical at Miami Beach, that she spent a lot of time. Now, she was, I think she's a higher higher-end escort type situation. So she didn't want to give her name. Uh, so she went by a pseudonym. And she says that the conversation she had with Bond, she knows that he wrote some of those songs and she swears that he wrote the lyrics to Back in Black. Uh, or at least most of the songs. She didn't say specifically that song, but she says she thinks he wrote the, 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 the lyrics to Have a Drink on Me and definitely shook me all night long. And a matter of fact, she made it a point to say the lyrics in the song now are wrong because it said uh, you it said she has sightless eyes telling me no lies, knocking me out with those American thighs. And she said those words are wrong. It's chartreuse eyes. And she says she remembers vividly sitting down with Bond and Bond looked at her and said, do you know what color your eyes are? And he said, they're chartreuse. And she was like, she didn't know what chartreuse was. Her eyes are kind of green. And you know, it's another thing. This is one of those uh, uh, Mandela effect things that most people think chartreuse is like a pink or something like that. And chartreuse is actually like a green color. Hmm. So anyway, he told, he told her, you know, you have chartreuse eyes. And he said he would mention that every time he would mention her eyes, he would say, you have chartreuse eyes. Or, so she says that the words were should have been. She had chartreuse eyes telling me no lies, that those are the words that Bond wrote. And that's part of what she says, why she knows he wrote it. Now, his brother, it was a a sailor, and he said that Bond would write him letters. And a lot of times he would be port to port to port. So these letters wouldn't always get to him in time. So they'd get to one port and he'd already left. So they'd ship it to the other. And he said one of the letters he got that had been basically four years before it got to him. But this was before Bond died, and he was telling him about going to the studio, and he'd already written lyrics for certain songs and all that stuff. So people think there's a kind of a conspiracy from the band that they they did not give Bond any credit for those songs, because if they don't give him the credit, they don't have to give him the royalties, his family, the royalties. So they think that's part of it. Well, where this is all coming from, there's a young lady, and I believe she's in Australia too, Uh, where the band was from, but she wrote a book and she says that the book basically was given to her by Bond, that Bond's ghost visits her all the time. And part of what he told her was he wrote those songs. So who knows how much any of this is true, but supposedly, according to her, she wrote a book with Bond's help from the afterlife that he wrote those songs and never got any credit for them. So I just thought that was a pretty cool story. Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm going to choose to believe that there was nothing paranormal about him getting the uh, the lyrics. I think maybe he could have found the notes where maybe Bon Scott had written them down somewhere. And he probably just couldn't read where it said Sartreuse and he just changed it. Or maybe he thought that, that sightless fit better. Yeah, it's uh, possible. I always prefer proof over anything else so but i don't think the paranormal part goes in with anything to do with the writing the songs no, no i just thought all. the paranormal part fit in i just thought it was a cool story but the paranormal part fit in where the woman who wrote the book says that bond came to her and told her all these different things so yeah and, and these things were all keep in mind these things were all separate times it's what the internet wasn't out in the 80s you know, like like where we could just always oh, read this. And it, I mean, these were things that this lady came out and told a magazine. This lady starts writing a book and none of these people knew each other. So it's like they were all kind of saying the same thing. But her version just happened to have that Bond came to her and often comes to her even today. So I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, I'd like to find more information on that part. Well, if I'd have brought my paperwork, you'd have had more information. I wouldn't prepare to talk about it, but I did. Speaking of something else I'm not prepared to talk about, we told a story on here about Julian Lennon before. 
And Julian Lennon, obviously John Lennon's son, said that his father told him at one point in time, and we told this story, that if he ever wanted to contact him, he would do so with a white feather. And right before Julian was getting ready to play, um, I think it was Royal Albert Hall for the first time in England, he was that that day he got a knock on the door and John Lennon had had a Indian headdress. I think it was from the movie Help, Native American headdress. And he had it and somebody stole it years and years before that. Because keep in mind, this is in the 80s now. Mm-hmm. And somebody had stolen it, but somebody decided to return it and they sent it to Julian that day. And it was, so it was kind of awesome that the day but that he had this big performance, he gets this gift that was totally unexpected that had been gone missing for 20 some years. So he gets it. And when he opens it up, like I said, keep in mind what a headdress is, he opens it up and a white feather feather flew out of the box. And it just kind of flew up in the air and just kind of floated down. And to him, that's what his father said. He would always reach out to him with a white feather. So he felt like that was his way of saying, Hey, I'm with you on this day of your first big show here in, here in London. Well, that story we told. Now Julian Lennon has a foundation where it's all about clean water and environmental and and helping people that are from um, areas of the world that are not you know very well off to try to make sure they've got the perfect conservation and stuff like that. And it's called the White Feather Foundation. I saw a story yesterday. Because he's got a uh, Julian writes, he's phenomenal. He, he, I don't even think he does music anymore. Everything's children's books and the charities and stuff like that. And he's got like three charities, I think. Yeah. But he was talking about this, how this happened. And he was in Australia doing a show. And he said that a group of uh, uh, Aborigines, and I can't remember the name of the tribe, but a group of Aborigines had showed up at his hotel that day. And he had no clue that they knew he was there or any of that stuff. And he said they got through to him. He came down to meet with him. They, you know, he said then the, the chief was in like a semicircle. He walked forward and like the whole semicircle of people kind of moved with him. And he said he approached Julian with a single white feather and just said, we wanted to present you with this. We just want you to know that, hey, that you've got a platform there's a lot of people, our tribe and, and some of the other people around here really need clean water. We don't have any of that. And you've got a platform where you could help. And he said with the, it was so odd because these people would have known nothing about the white feather. It was, once again, 80s, no internet. This wasn't something that was out. And he just took this as his father telling him it's time to step up to the plate and not just be a rock star. Use this. Use it. You're good for something else. So he started the White Feather Foundation that's been going on for years now, and now it helps countless numbers of, of people all over the world get clean water and all that stuff. But I just thought that was kind of cool that he felt like that was his father's way of sending the White Feather again. So he's had two incidents in his life with a White Feather involved. Yeah, it's, it's and that's really very cool. specific. <laughs> it's very specific. You can't really argue much about that. So. It's kind of rude that he only sent him two White Feathers his whole life, but... <laughs> Well, white feathers may be hard to come by in heaven. <laughs> so, imagine. Um, hey, thanks for sitting in. It was fun. We don't get to do this very often. Yeah, no problem. All right, we'll talk to you soon. you got to love some good rock and roll stuff. Of course. Anytime you can get an album written by a Ouija board and talk about, you know, Julian Lennon. And mm-hmm. I thought it was a pretty cool little setup. And Alex loves doing that stuff. So. Oh, yeah, I know he does. I'm glad he could sit in with you and do that. It's amazing how much I've learned about that stuff, though. And we do, uh, at the live show in Louisville and then the, the upcoming live shows, we do a little bit of rock and roll stuff mm-hmm. that's not on this show because we want it to be separate. But yeah. we go back. We'll say it's music in the occult. Mm-hmm. We won't even say it's rock because it goes way back further. Yeah. We basically talk about the origin of music in the occult. Mm-hmm. So pretty yeah. cool. It, it really is because when you, when you when you listen, <laughs> yeah, when you listen to... I have listened to all these songs over the years, and then you could start finding this stuff out about it. It's like, that's like a whole new world. 
Well, and it's like I said, it's not that all of it's really 100% legit, but that's what's well, out there. But true, but it really makes you think. Now, Hotel California, that's legit. I don't care what Don Henley says, because he comes out and says, mm-hmm. well, no, that's not what it is. And Don Felder, who helped write the song, well, that's not what it is. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, like I said, a lot of this stuff can just be up for debate or, you know, what your thought is and somebody else's thought. That one's not up for debate. That's The words are right there. Yeah. Flat but up. It's, it's it all, all lines yeah, up. Yeah, it sure does. And it, But it's fun, too. It's it fun is. to learn about that stuff. And it really makes you think. I mean, I totally look at things a whole lot differently now with some of these songs. It's their way to heaven, same way. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know. Stuff like, and I had this pointed out to me, and I wish I could remember who it was, but like in, in it's where it says it's just a spring clean for the May Queen. Well, those are like pagan terms, you know, the spring clean and, and the May Queen, uh, all, all that comes from pagan, mm-hmm. um, stuff. So, I mean, it's, there, there is a reason for it. It's not just gibberish in the song. Yeah. It's there and it means something. So, yikes. Basically, like, get rid of all the Christians is basically what a spring yeah. clean for the May. So, Whatever the case is. Anyways, it's been a fun show. It has been a fun show. And you, thank you guys for all your nice comments about my song with Tragic. That was really nice of you guys to say all those things. So we appreciate it. And I know Mike does too. Yeah. And Mike told me that he's polishing that song up. And hopefully it'll be something that we could play the whole song on really soon. <laughs> Next week's show is going to be cool. It's going to be kind of a theme show we're going to do three stories all from the state of michigan mm-hmm. so there we go and we had a cool event happen i won't say paranormal but a very eerie coincidence yeah tied to that and we'll talk about that next week during the show yeah we will see you guys soon all right guys hope y'all have a blessed week we love y'all Hey guys, Hillbilly Horror Stories has an assortment of ways that you can follow us on social media. If you're interested, you can like our fan page on Facebook, or you can join our Facebook group. Both of those are Hillbilly Horror Stories. Just do a search on Facebook, and you'll find both of them. If you're into Instagram, it's Hillbilly underscore horror underscore stories. And if you're into Snapchat or Twitter, it's Hillbilly Pod on both of those. Send us a message. We always answer back, but you can at least keep up with what we're doing one way or the other. 